Well, I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. We're going to be turning to the book of Jonah. And today we're in chapter 2. I also hope you had a good weekend. And I hope you each had a watermelon as good as the one I ate yesterday afternoon. And that you had a good weekend, rested and revived. And uh, we're here together on the Lord's Day, Lord's people, the Lord's Word open in our laps. We're going to read His Word and then pray that He would explain it to us in such a way that we can understand and obey it. This is the second chapter of Jonah, but we're going to back up to verse 17 of the first chapter. Should be there on the same page, most likely. Verse 17, Jonah chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I cried out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains... I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this short book, Jonah's Prophecy. We thank you for Psalms. We thank you for your entire record of Scripture, but for today, this, our portion, we ask your help in understanding its meaning. We ask for your resolve, your strength, your grace to be obedient to it. Lord, we thank you for church, such as it is, to gather together by whatever means we have available, to do this together, to study, to hear, to sing, to look at one another. Lord, we thank you for our church family. And we thank you for your grace. And we ask that you do through it what pleases you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I think most of us have been saying this. I take it for granted. Perhaps I shouldn't. But I think it's safe to say we're all familiar with the book of Jonah and the story's contents. And uh, even though last week where we left off with verse 17 of chapter 1 about the fish being appointed to swallow Jonah and his staying in its belly for three days and three nights. That's actually the first verse of the second chapter if you're reading a Hebrew Bible. 
I'm not sure why in English it's separated as it is, but to the uninitiated reader, which is, I don't think, any of us, that would be the most awful spoiler alert for the next episode. But I don't think anything was spoiled last week or reading it like this this week. We all know what takes place. But as far as the drama of it all and how these things work, perhaps it seemed best to position it there right at the beginning of chapter 2 because there is this very significant format change with chapter 1, then chapter 2, then 3 and 4. This chapter is largely poetry. If you've got a good study Bible, it's probably set over in its margin and uh, you get about a third of the words that go normally on a page because it's they're skinny, broken up the way we usually see poetry formatted. And the reason for this is actually because there's this major pause in the whole drama of the story. By the time we get to chapter 2, uh, the whole narrative of the sailors and the ship, as far as they're concerned, the, that story has ended and it ended happily. They've been saved and we won't hear about them at all again. But then chapter 3's contents, which is focused on Nineveh, which we were told about in chapter 1, that hasn't come on to the scene yet. That's another act which hasn't begun. So with chapter 2... You've only got Jonah and his God together alone. And this isn't like they're being alone in the first three verses of chapter 1 where it's simplistically told, this is what I have for you to do. And Jonah says, uh, no, and goes the other way. This record of their time together is much more narrow. It's much more dramatic and... Uh, if you're like me at all, it probably ranks on the severely acute nature of uh, claustrophobia. Have you ever been stuck somewhere you couldn't get out? Did you like it? My brother locked me in a doghouse one time. Had a barrel lock on the outside. And I remember trying to bang on it in the... The shingles that were on the top. It looked a lot like Snoopy's. Uh, the roofing nails came down through the, the sheathing on the top. And it was really hot in there, I remember. And it was a good while because the things that I said once the barrel lock was closed made my brother fear to let me out. So he just took off. I don't remember who let me out, but it was awful. Claustrophobic. I don't like it. This is that, but in such... Of, of, of incredible distance as far as the drama goes here. Look again at that verse, likely the most famous of the entire book. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, as far as the way these verses are put together, on, on either side of this poem... The last verse of narrative, storytelling, and then uh, the first as it resumes at the very end of chapter 2, verse 10. Those are probably the more famous. Those are the two verses having to do with the fish. But I like the way one commentator had said it. He put it this way. This verse, that's 117, and then 210, 
are the two verses that absolutely ruin this story for modern readers. Because it's because of these two verses that they just don't believe it. Most modern scholars believe this is to be taken as allegory. That it didn't really happen the way that we read it if we're reading it literally. And one pastor that I'd read in preparing for this uh, recalls a letter he received from one of his members who tells the story of how this verse was actually the opposite for her. It's the one that made her wrestle with whether or not the Bible can be trusted in its entirety, literally speaking. And she told the story of preparing a Sunday school lesson for Sunday school class uh, based on the way she grew up going to Sunday school and hearing these things. She was practicing on her kids, telling them that this really wasn't ever meant to be understood and believed is that it truly happened but it's like other stories that we hear and it's for the purpose of teaching us the principle of obedience to God but at that time she says her Presbyterian husband came through the room and said what's wrong with you of course it's true you believe the other stuff in there don't you why wouldn't you believe that this is true and she said that's what kicked off in her mind a wrestling with this and then trying to work with what she had Say it's just that story that's supposed to teach obedience to God. After you've taught the eight-year-olds in Sunday school class, what do you tell them to do with it? If you've been disobedient to God, I'd stay out of the water when you go to the beach. (laughs) What do you do with it? It teaches other things in addition to that, of course. But the heartburn associated with this specific passage... is really not understood by those that believe it and very precarious to those who who don't because this is by no means God's greatest display of power or control recorded in the Bible. You'd have to give it that much. And what's so difficult about it probably has to do with whether or not it's considered miraculous, which is... uh, This is one of my own personal beliefs. I think... The term miracle itself as we want to believe it. We want to believe that miracle means the bending, breaking, or twisting of the natural laws of the universe that God created. Or I don't know if I really share that. I don't think there's anything in this story that tells us that this fish was created specifically for this one job. It could have been a sea creature that moved around the waters up into that point. Maybe extinct now. Maybe not. But I don't, I don't see anything that needs to be miraculous about it at all. I don't know that it's that big of a difficulty for someone to survive in the belly of a fish big enough to swallow him. Uh, my wife and I were watching one of these uh, documentaries the other day, and they're talking about a blue whale. It's 100 feet long. Uh, it barely fit in our gym. And they said the gulp that the thing can take when he's eating krill uh, is enough room inside of his throat for 100 men. Not just one. And then what happens if he's swallowed? I don't know. But I, I don't know that we're on the, the, the cusp of the miraculous here. I think it might be described by God's control over the natural world. When Adam was created and before sin, it says he named every last animal. I don't have a brain like that. Something's wrong with mine if that's what Adam did with his. 
think it's this sin nature. Something was lost then. The control over the, the created realm and having dominion over it, I think, is much different now than it was then. And that, for whatever it's worth, even so, don't you agree that we do spend a good amount of time trying to explain these sorts of things? It makes sermons like this more interesting, don't, don't they? I've already talked about a blue whale and how many people can, can be squeezed into his throat. But you've heard illustrations on sermons in Jonah. If you just think about what you've learned over the years or studies or things that you remember from sermons... And they probably range from, you know, fanciful to goofy or, or maybe even foolish. Uh, I remember the well-worn illustrations about the, the one in, the, I think it's the 1800s, where the guy got swallowed and the guy's harpoon, the whale, got it on the deck, cut it all open. The dude was unconscious. He was bleached white, but he did revive and did survive the whole thing. And whether or not that can be substantiated, I don't know. Or the whale that was cut open, they found a whole horse inside of it, which was dead. But men are smaller than horses, so it could happen. And then the idea that one fella, I remember saying that it was probably that the fish spit Jonah out on the Phoenician coast, because in Phoenicia, that's where they worshipped a fish god. And to have a bleached white man coughed up by a fish would have instantly credited him with deity. They would have listened to everything he said and his reputation would have preceded him all the way to Nineveh where they would also have bowed down and listened to this new fish god, demigod. And this is the point where we need to call foul. Okay? Because that just breaks so many rules. Uh, academic rules, but just let's just say gentleman rules of, of interpreting the Scripture. One, one thing you cannot do is interpret a passage of Scripture based on things that you can't even pull out of that passage of Scripture. You can't do that. And then what's worse is taking certain components of the things that you brought from elsewhere and then making them necessary as an ingredient in the outcome. The outcome would be Nineveh repenting. Now, what if Jonah had just obeyed? He didn't go to Tarshish. He didn't get thrown overboard. He didn't get swallowed. He didn't turn white. He didn't go to Nineveh stinky and funny looking. Would they still have repented? You see, if you amp up the story such that it's more plausible that they repent because of a crazy looking preacher, then you've diminished the grace of God that can change anybody. It's bad preaching. It's entertaining preaching. <laughs> but it's bad preaching. So, with that said, let's keep moving. The question is not, is there a fish big enough to swallow Jonah alive? The question is, is there a God big enough to create and command a fish to do it? And if there's a God at all, like the Bible describes in Genesis 1.1, then the fish part in Jonah 1.17 is no big deal. And uh, I do feel sorry for the fish because he's the most criticized fish or the most legendary fish that ever swam the Mediterranean Sea. He's probably just a normal old fish who was responsive to his creator. The controversy doesn't end there. It actually begins to ramp up in verse 1 of chapter 2. And the reason for that is the entire poetic section of chapter 2 
all but one verse of it because chapter verse 10 is actually narrative again. All modern scholars basically say this is misplaced. It shouldn't be here. It's not actually part of what was originally written, that it was produced some other time and then added at a different time by another author, even though no adequate reason for this has ever been suggested as far as actual manuscripts or copies or actual scrolls of what's been found. So, one group, this produces consternation. Another group, it produces worship. We're going to look at it in that regard. Um, And it's also been said that the format itself, being poetic, I mean, you just look at it visually on the page. It doesn't look the same as the other three chapters. But the folks will say that it doesn't sound like something Jonah would say. He's got a bad attitude in chapter 1, and he has a bad attitude in chapter 4. Why would he have a good attitude in chapter 2? Well, have you had a good and bad attitude swap this week? How about today? Maybe since you've been here. How about the ride over? <laughs> Sharing a sink at home, you know, if you have to do that. I don't know. That's just us. That's the way we are. And, and to take it up another notch, the idea of what's here claimed to be borrowed from other places because some places it sounds like Psalm 42 and some places it sounds like Psalm 18. I want to actually wonder if the scholars who raised this objection have ever been to a a real church service before how do we start this service by using the resources of a psalm to help us enter the presence of our god in the spirit of praise and worship people have been using the psalms for that purpose forever since they've been written this is a prophet of god he knows the psalms if he's beat up and he's broken he may use them to express his heart back to his creator. That's normal. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is the last time I'm going to mention scholars, okay? Some of them think that he didn't pray right off. In fact, the ones that study the Hebrew, the Hebrew scholars say that he didn't pray until the end of the third day. And right before he was spat out again. I'm not sure that we can tell that. That specifically. But it's something to consider. Um, There's a lot of different ways we could. Outline the prayer we've got from verse 1 to 9. There's different ways that it's constructed in its lines. And the way the verses are grouped. Um, A reputable commentary can help you study that if you're so interested. But for what we're going to do today, I think three categories uh, can help us at least get our heads around what we're looking at. The first is admission, if you want to take notes. There is an admission of sorts. Uh, Some word parsing here, you might say it's, it's, it's an admission because it's maybe a hair short of a confession. There's no I was wrong, but there does seem to be quite the admission that this is my fault. Look at verse 2. 
I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Here it is. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. This comes from you, and it's because it's my fault. So at long last, Jonah's now speaking the truth. It's about time. He hasn't prayed. He hasn't witnessed. He hasn't done anything. Now he's speaking the truth, but it's not until he's reached the bottom. Now, in the Old Testament... Uh, Death is understood to be more of a process than an event. We've talked about this. Even when we studied uh, Lazarus and his resurrection. And how that um, after being dead four days. It it was common thought that a body three days dead was when the the spirit would lift off. And uh, we, we know medicine too well. We know when a heart stops beating and brain waves cease that body is is dead Uh, but it was looked at this way in this culture and at this point Jonah's life had ebbed so much that he could have been reckoned more among the dead than among the living and maybe the the duration of these three days uh, is significant in that regard but just listen to what he's saying here then I said I am driven away from your sight so he's, he's out of the Lord's presence Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's his hope. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. Yep, that's called drowning. Um, Last we saw him last week thrown overboard. That's a death sentence. Nobody survives that without any help. Uh, The deep surrounded me, so it sounds like he's sinking. Weeds were wrapped around his head. And then this in verse 6. At the roots of the mountains. I'd say that's pretty deep, wouldn't you? I looked it up. I wanted to know how deep the ocean was. Which do you think is a greater distance? The floor of the ocean from the surface or cruising altitude for a 747? The ocean is actually deeper than you fly above the ground in a 747, usually. You can go a little higher, but... Oxygen starts to thin out. Doesn't work so well for the plane. 36,000 feet deep. Now, the Mediterranean is only 17,000 deep. But still, that's pretty deep. And I did learn that as the body sinks, the pressure on the body, actually at a certain point, equilibrium is reached and you sink even if you've got air in your lungs. Don't know how far he sank. Don't know how long he could survive don't know a lot of these things it's speculation only just for our imagination but to think of this and try to imagine it i went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever sounds like pressure an insurmountable distance to get back to the surface yet you brought up my life from the pit and that's the turning point of this prayer When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here's your second category. Restoration. That's what we've just read. You can see it. You've brought my life up from the pit. I shall again look at your holy temple. Then when you get to verse 7, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. 
Do you remember Solomon dedicating that temple? That was supposed to be the place where if people prayed, God would meet them there and forgive their sins. What had Jonah been doing from chapter 1? Running away from the presence of the Lord. What we've got here is restoration, and it must begin at the very area where rebellion formerly existed. He'd run away from the Lord. Now he's back in his presence. When my life was fainting away, I remembered you, and my prayer came to you. That also signals of, of, of reconnection. His, his network's back up. We get upset when we lose our internet. I don't have access. Well, Jonah didn't have access. He didn't pray because he knew it was useless. Well, now his prayer has reached the holy temple. Do you remember when uh, Ananias was sent to go to the street called Straight? To find Saul of Tarsus, who was praying. And he's supposed to speak with him and welcome him into the family of Christ. And Ananias has his doubts. But that explanation is brief. But it should assure him that change has taken place. Behold, he is praying. He's now Paul the Apostle. And Jonah now is praying. Drastic change for whatever it's worth. He's not out of the woods. He's not anywhere near learned his lessons yet. But he's praying again. This is huge. And then third is appreciation. This is verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not uncommon to hear in Psalms people comparing their devotion to those without it. This will take on a new meaning when we get to Nineveh. But... The last phrase is the most important. Tim Keller who said it takes the whole prayer for Jonah to get there to declare about God's grace. A declaration of God's grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But when he does, when he does actually get to that point in the prayer, whether or not it was at the same time, at least the way we read it, it seems to trigger the voice of God to the fish to turn him loose. So finally, the prodigal returns, drawn closer to his Lord than ever before by the cords of redemptive love. We've talked about this repeatedly. This was not to destroy Jonah. This was to bring him back. The fish was grace. Now, just to use all the parallelism we can find in here and not to leave anything on the table, both chapters 1 and 2 end with the same theme of vows and sacrifice. And... Having done so, this means that both the sailors and Jonah should linger in our mind comparatively. We should check one against the other. Both faced a similar crisis, which was peril at sea. Both cried to God and acknowledged His sovereignty. Both were saved. Both offered worship. But what we're left with is that it took a lot more doing to get God's prophet to the same place than it did those sailors. 
an entire three days in the belly of a fish worth of doing to get him where he needed to be. So this psalm is over. The narrative resumes where it broke in verse 17 of chapter 1. We're back to the narrated story, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Don't you like these modern translations? You're, you're, King James doesn't use the word vomited. But that seems to be the more accurate way. If any of you have been fishing, especially ocean fish, by the time you get the crazy thing in the boat, you get to witness what they do with what they've eaten and sling it all over your boat. Um, but here, another lesson. Unlike the prophet, the fish responded promptly. The Lord spoke, he spit him out. So what should we learn from this? We can learn from a fish, we can learn from a prophet, we can learn from sailors, we can learn in a lot of ways. And there's a lot that we could say about this passage. But here's at least two things, and they're, they're not things that we've seen uh, or haven't seen already, and they're not things that we won't see again but I think this, the emphasis lies here. And while we're looking at the emphasis, that's where we should focus our attention. Here's point number one. There'll be two of these, and they're like two sides of a coin. And oftentimes in Scripture, when you say that, two sides of a coin, usually one side you like and the other side you hate. And the thing about it is we're stuck with both sides of this coin. Uh, this is where we live as broken Sinful people who need God's grace. But number one is this. We will need to feel the grace of God before we will ever be suitable ministers of that grace. I'll say it one more time. We will need to feel the grace of God before we will ever be suitable ministers of grace. And this is just to discuss the lesson that Jonah was put through in order to learn what he needed to prepare him for Nineveh. And once we're old enough or mature enough to look back on our walk with the Lord, we can see that the most important lessons that we ever learned were the result of God's severe mercies. You wouldn't put those words together usually, but that's so typical of the way it, it works. The good lessons, the life-changing lessons, the things we would say we wouldn't trade if we had the option, those usually hurt. And a lot of times they hurt bad and involved other people that perhaps were hurting. Classes we would have never chosen to enroll in but later come to yield more good in our lives than we would ever have thought. This is nothing new in Scripture. Uh, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son. Uh, Jacob had to work for his father-in-law who cheated him. And it wasn't until after he'd separated all his stuff so that when his brother came and attacked him in, in, in vengeance for what he had ripped him off with as far as the birthright, maybe he wouldn't kill all his family but just half of it. He's sleeping under the stars. He wrestles with the angel. And he walks with a limp from that point on. That's when Jacob became Israel. Then you got Joseph. You remember his problem. His brother sold him into slavery. And uh, 
When everything looked like he'd turned it around for his own good, there was Potiphar's wife who lied about him. He spent time in jail. And then when he did see his brothers, he was able to say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Then there was David. Do you remember all the caves that he lived in writing psalms? He's running for his life from that crazy King Saul. Elijah, add him to the list of God's prophets who'd rather been dead at some point in his life. This was because of an evil queen who was going to be dead soon enough. New Testament, we've got plenty. You've got Paul, but Peter's probably the more dramatic. Best thing he ever had going for him, he betrayed, went out and wept bitterly. Went fishing again. His life's ruined. And then he has to confess to this man by answering three questions similar to the three ways in which he betrayed him. All of these men wound up very powerful leaders, but only through failure and suffering. And this is where I say one of the the most memorable sayings I heard in seminary, but a haunting one, and that is that God has never used a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And that's where I don't know if I want to be great. I mean, what kind of person welcomes hurt and disaster in their lives? But I think it's very true. It's only when you get to the very bottom, when everything blows apart, when all your ideas, plans, schemes, and fallbacks are shot, then and maybe only then will you be ready to learn how to completely depend on the Lord. And as awful as this year's been so far, I do believe we're I do believe we're learning things. I hope we are. I had written down from one commentator, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a great place to learn. If you've got ears to hear. Here's number two. Just because we thankfully accept the Lord's merciful forgiveness doesn't mean we aren't capable of denying the same to others. This is a prelude for chapter 4. Say it one more time if you're writing these down. Just because we thankfully accept the Lord's merciful forgiveness doesn't mean we aren't capable of denying the same thing to others. We've been through this. We, we tend to have too high a view of ourselves. Paul talked about this over and over. Think not of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. And as such, we're not in awe of God's grace because we're not so sure we need it, at least not as much as somebody else might need it. I'm I'm better or closer to the Lord than they are. And we're not lost. We lose the, 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 the wonder of what it is to be saved by grace. And it begins to harden our hearts. Jesus excruciatingly worked over the Pharisees with a whole battery of parables to, to beat this out of them if they had ears to hear. We on Wednesdays have studied the unforgiving servant who there's no doubt he was happy when he was forgiven the debt he couldn't ever pay but no sooner as he left he's grabbed the throat of the guy that owes him barely anything and where's his mercy? He'd forgotten about it. Uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the guy? He's, he's thanking the Lord for His grace in his life that He's made him this, that, and the other. And then he says, and not like that loser over there. As if he's better. And then there's the Good Samaritan. 
where you got the one out of the three who was despised by the Jewish people, who was neighbor to the guy while they considered the guy in trouble who was beaten not their neighbor, so on a technicality they don't have any obligation to him. All of those are all over this story of Jonah. And they're all over us because we're all in the same boat. We've all, hopefully, at the end of these sermons, agree. I am Jonah. Those who compare themselves to others will always find reason for pride. And that's, that's the problem here. That was Jonah's. Those who compare themselves to the Lord will realize their own weakness, cry out humbly for mercy, then extend that mercy to others. When our object is a comparison between us and others, we'll always puff ourselves up. When the comparison is us and our Lord, we're always humble and, and worthless and in need of grace. And we'll be glad to give it to someone else. So next week we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to see what Jonah does with his second chance. And we'll spend about a week in that, likely. The narrative moves quickly. And there's been so much of an expectation, it goes quickly. Then there's chapter 4. We'll spend a few weeks there. And that'll be about the length of our summer series. This this summer, uh, it was... So, I don't know how you look on your summer with the expectations involved. This has been a summer like no other. And a summer where we're supposed to get a break from the virus. I don't think we're getting our break. I think it's getting worse. At least that's what we're being told. And uh, I was kind of joking in a quick text with a friend earlier this morning. Uh, We both admit it's been crazy. You use that term more now? It's crazy. Schedule's crazy. Expectations are crazy. Uh, our ability to plan at maybe, you know, a week or two at a time is crazy. And I had written back, you know, I think we were crazy when crazy meant something. But now it doesn't mean anything. Everybody is crazy like this. And it, it's just this cloud over everything that just seems to... Keep in the back of your mind this this depressed type of a of a mood. I wouldn't dare call it the belly of a whale, but it feels like the belly of something. And I'm I'm ready to get out, ready for it to spit me out somewhere, and let's get back to normal. Maybe it didn't time yet. I I couldn't say. Maybe we've got more to learn. I don't know. Um, But to acknowledge things, to be restored, to have an appreciation for the grace of God. Jonah has more to learn, and so do we. These truths are timeless. And the truth is that no human heart will learn its sinfulness only by being told it's sinful. This has been telling us we're sinful for millennia. If you grew up in a church, you've had one of these. You've read one of these. You've memorized one of these. Just being told you're sinful doesn't always do the trick. To feel it. (laughs) My dad used to have this saying. When we're on the edge of where we should have been listening long ago and lightning's about to strike, he would say, boys, if you can't hear, maybe you can feel 
It's not so popular these days. You don't tweet that or put it on Facebook, you know. But isn't that the truth as far as our spirituality? Sometimes there's something wrong with our ears. We have to feel these things. We have to be shown often through brutal experience. But just as Jonah said, salvation comes from the Lord. It won't come from us. We won't save ourselves from whatever we're, we're stuck in in 2020. To think we could is an absurdity. Salvation only comes through the Lord and through the truth of His Word and through real change that He works in our hearts because of redemption. So again, it's God who's the hero of this passage. He's the one who affects salvation. He's the one who enables deliverance. Neither Jonah nor the fish was in control. Neither are we. It was God and God alone. It is God and God alone. So, in the middle of crazy town where we live, it is probably wisdom just to sit and be quiet and to listen, to learn, and to pray. Thinking my way through this, um, sometimes. It's not a waste of time to just sit and use your imagination with stories like this. It works when you're six and when you're 60. But to imagine the deck of that ship blown and tossed in the wind. If anybody's ever been out in a boat in a good stiff wind, you probably realize that it's not where you're supposed to be. The noise of it in your ears is amazing. And then the sound of it on the water and any ropes or fishing line that begins to sing as it vibrates. It's just this feeling that that brings a dread with it the acoustics of it are awe-inspiring that's what makes people want to go stand on the beach when you're supposed to evacuate i don't know why it is but it's that way and imagine the 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 screaming of these men and trying to figure out what to do and the useless rowing and then all of a sudden you're thrown over into the water and the only thing that's comparable to this is a memory of a movie i liked as a kid it was produced by Francis Ford Coppola was a black stallion. I mentioned it once before. But the, the, the first act, the way the picture goes, is this boy and his father, they're on a boat, and a storm causes something to go wrong with the boat. The boat catches fire. It's sinking. He's told to wait by his father. He's going to go help some people. They get separated. He's thrown overboard, and uh, he finds this rope attached to this black stallion that's going to be his salvation and by the end of the movie he wins a horse race with it you need to see it but uh in that scene it's in the dark and when he hits the water the scene is from his perspective as he goes under the water the sound is different than when he bobs above it when he's above it and the water drains out of your ears if you've ever been to the pool or in the ocean you know how this works acoustically it's totally different and in the, the movie, you hear the screams of people on the boat in the distance and the fire and the engines trying to struggle. And then under the water, you just hear gurgling bubbles, but all that's masked. And up and down, it's like somebody's flipping a switch of, of awful noise back and forth. Imagine being Jonah, and with the flip of that switch, you go from this noise and chaos of a boat into this silent and what would eventually, if it was in the middle of the day, it'd be dark pretty quick. Whether he got down low to where light doesn't go, and that's only a couple hundred feet. Or the 
the whale gobbles him up, or fish, or Leviathan, or whatever it is. I would assume he could hear the heart beating in that creature. Maybe if it had lungs and was a mammal, it taking a breath if it surfaced. And maybe some creepy digestion noises. Stomach growling. But that's a lot different than the boat, isn't it? Quiet, dark, very stinky, unpleasant, all of it. Perfect place to learn. What are we learning out of all this stuff? I didn't, I don't know why I chose this. The Lord chose it, and it seems to have been applicable so many times during what we've needed it for. But I just think maybe the pontificating and the political posturing and the virtue signaling and all of it, let's, let's trade it for some silence, some introspection, some learning, and some prayer. I think that might be a good recipe to start changing a lot of stuff with yourself it's just Jonah there it's always just you and the Lord Um, even from Narnia when one sibling wants to ask Aslan about what's going on with the other he said that's not not for you to know it's between me and you at least I think this would be beneficial let's pray Father in heaven We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the truth we we see in the book of Jonah. We thank you for the comparisons and we thank you for the, the shoe that fits. Lord, teach us. May we take full advantage of the silence, even the displeasure. And may we pray to you. And maybe about the time we pray, maybe the time we'll, we'll find a breakthrough with you we haven't seen before. Lord, put our hearts in the position of, of what's necessary to see your grace for what it is, and that is awe and splendor and beauty and greatness. Lord, that may, may that be what we leave this room thinking about. The greatness of your grace. We ask all this in your name. Amen.